Morning. Hey, we've been in a conversation uh, uh, called Fight, where we've been looking at uh, the relationships, the, the things in our lives, the people, the, the, the stuff that we have that God has given us that demands, that deserves to be uh, fought for, things that the enemy wants to take from us, wants to kill, steal, and destroy, uh, and yet we've got to advocate for, we've got to fight for, and, uh, and we're in this moment where we're having this conversation about uh, praying big prayers, asking God to do big things. We've been talking about since the beginning of January what it means for us to not just ask God to do some things that we can't really tell if he did or not, like ambiguous, vague things, but to actually ask God to do measurable, big things in our life and in the lives of the people around us, things that we can't deny that God has done and can't deny that he has moved. And so we've been in this uh, conversation really since the beginning of the year where we just keep putting prayer at the forefront of everything we do where we're praying and we're fighting and we're warring in the heavenlies and we're petitioning God and, and we want to keep doing that. We don't want to quit and we don't want to back down because there are people around us that need us to fight for them, that need us to pray for them and they may not ask for it and they may not uh, even act like they, they want it and may not deserve it, uh, but there are people who are counting on us to advocate on their behalf. And so as we're talking about asking God to do big things and answer big prayers, we have to talk about what happens when God doesn't answer those prayers. I think the most common thing that all of us have experienced in our lives is disappointment. It may not settle in at first. You may be resilient. You may be faithful. You may be a really good, strong Christian, and, and it may take you years before you get disappointed, but if we keep asking God to do things and we keep seeing that he doesn't do exactly what we ask, at some point we get disappointed. If you're like me, it's usually within a day or two. It's like I asked, and where's my answer? The reality is disappointment often uh, settles into all of our hearts when God doesn't do exactly what we want him to do. And the interesting thing about the modern church is that uh, the modern church often paints God in a positive light. So everything's good and perfect and rose-colored glasses and nothing's wrong and nothing's bad and you get what you ask for. And, and largely churches do this to bolster attendance and, of course, giving. And, and we want to keep putting Jesus as, as this perfect thing where, you know, every, if you follow Christ, everything's good in your life. And we hide the bad stuff and we hide the hard stuff and... We just put a smile on, and, and the reality is, life is hard. And we go through moments and seasons and times where we're struggling. Things are painful, and, and we can't just say, well, everything's good when it's not. We owe it to ourselves and to the people around us to be honest with the reality that we ask for God to do things, and sometimes he just doesn't do them. Or he doesn't do them in the way that we want to see him do it. And, and God doesn't always do what we think he should do when we think he should do it. And disappointment ends up being the characteristic that many of us carry around. Where we're just optimistic that we're going to be disappointed. Like I'm just walking around asking with disappointment uh, at the forefront of my mind. And, and he doesn't always give me what I want when I want. He doesn't always meet the needs that I think I have. And and God just doesn't always do exactly what we want, and so we're left with anger and sadness and, and disappointment. And some of you in the room, somebody online watching or listening to this podcast is going, yeah, that's me. I mean, I'm, I'm just disappointed. I mean, I wouldn't admit it. I wouldn't say it out loud, especially in a room like this, but I'm disappointed. Life hasn't taken the turn that I wanted it to, and the things that I thought I needed or really needed didn't work out. I loved and prayed and, and, and hoped and, and lost, and, and, and I'm suffering because of it and disappointment with God. It's, it's not wrong and it's not sinful. 
Or rather, it's actually a part of the human condition. That it's actually a healthy part of our existence. If you ever have been disappointed with God, it means that there was a point in your life when you believed in him. If you've ever hoped that he would come through for you and he didn't and you became disappointed, it meant that you had a moment of hope. And I believe God wants to reignite that hope in him. I believe he wants to bring us back to a trust and a belief in him that he may not do what you want, but he's working. He's working in your situation, and he's working uh, on your situation, and I don't always understand, but we can trust. And for you and I, if we're working from a place of disappointment, it's time for us to open up to the reality that God might want to meet us in that disappointment. And there's a story in John 11. Um, It's a strange story, but it's a moment where Jesus was just too late, right? Uh, Where he just didn't show up on time. And Mary was the one who anointed Jesus' feet and washed them with with her hair. And her brother Lazarus, he was sick and he was dying. And uh, she sends word to Jesus. She says, come quickly. He's dying. He needs you. And in John 11, verse 3, the sister sent a message to Jesus. Lord, The one you love is sick. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. I love the phrasing and the the timing, and and it's almost comical. Jesus loved Lazarus, so he stuck around a few more days. He knew he was sick, and he knew he was destitute, and he needed Jesus to be at his side. So he stuck around a few more days. Now, I don't know what he did, but if I'm Lazarus and I'm dying, it better be real important whatever Jesus was doing. It better be essential because... Why would you stick around two more days if you really loved Lazarus? Now, he gives a bold statement. This sickness will not end in death. And I'm sure the people around him were like, well, that feels good. Yeah, that's probably right. And at the time, it probably felt encouraging. And I don't know if you've ever gone to Scripture to try to find things to just pump you up a little bit. There's a lot of good Scriptures for that where it's just you take them out of context and you go, well... That makes me feel good for a moment, but then you're only set up to fail later because whatever you thought wasn't going to happen ended up happening. You're like, but wait, I had this scripture. Jesus said this. Because life doesn't always work the way we want it to, and things don't always work out the way that we hope they will. And we grab scripture verses to try to make us feel something in the moment. And for Jesus, he tells them this promise. He's making them a promise. It wasn't just... Uh, pithy words. It wasn't just a sentiment of, it's going to be okay. He was giving them a promise, and he was not rushing. I get so frustrated because the first disappointment I have with Jesus is that he's way too slow. I move fast, and I like for God to move fast. Like, my brain's thinking a bunch of things, and I'm doing certain things, and as I work, I have projects, and I dabble in this and dabble in that, and I like Jesus to do that. I want him to move fast. I want him to feel a sense of hurry. Urgency, maybe a little anxiety, where it's like there's a lot of needs, I gotta meet them. I gotta hurry and rush over here and rush over there. And yet, what we find is that Jesus is moving slow. But if Jesus really loved Lazarus, wouldn't he move a little faster? I mean, if he truly cared, wouldn't he just pick up and go? I mean, why not leave now? What was Jesus doing that was so essential? 
that he couldn't leave and be by his side. Why is Jesus never in a hurry? Throughout scriptures, we find that he walks with this peace that's really annoying. I want him to be anxious and to move. And if you've ever thought in your life that Jesus was moving too slow, you're not alone. In fact, I think Jesus actually does move too slow. And one of the disappointments that I have with God is that I often attach my expectations with Jesus' faithfulness. My expectations are often that he moved quickly, but his faithfulness often takes time. Almost like a simmer. It's there, it's working, it's doing its job. It's just not fast. See, I like an air fryer. I love an air fryer. I can put a potato chopped up in an air fryer in like two minutes I've got french fries, right? I like something quick and immediate and yet it's a slow cook that's happening where when we call out to God, we say, move. And he goes, I'm gonna give it a few days. But don't worry because it's all gonna work out to the glory of God. And, and Jesus doesn't really care about Lazarus because he's not moving fast, right? We live with this idea that if only he moved and, and worked really quickly, then that is equal to caring. And yet, there's a bigger thing happening here. Something larger is transpiring. And, and Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so the Son of God will be glorified through it. And there's hope here, but it's not false hope like we imagine. In John eleven seventeen, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So maybe it was false hope. Maybe Jesus was saying it won't end in death. I'm just kidding. Four days later, uh, it actually did end in death. And so everyone's left with this kind of jaw-dropping sort of what are you talking about moment. In verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them uh, about their brother. And so there's this urgency. There's this moment. Jesus is saying it's not going to end in death. It does end in death. He dies four days by the time Jesus gets there. He could have left two days ago. Everything could have worked out really well, but it didn't. And this often is exactly what characterizes so many of our lives. If it had just happened this way and just been a little sooner and just happened this way, it would have all worked out, but it all fell apart instead. And there was an urgency here because funerals in context were immediate. They didn't have the capacity to, uh, to take care of the bodies, to preserve the bodies. And so uh, immediately the bodies would begin to deteriorate and break down. And so they didn't wait four, five, six, nine days a week to do a funeral. They had to do it immediately. They had to bury, had to uh, put them in the cave and seal the tomb because uh, the smell and rot and things would decay, would settle in. And so all of a sudden we're four days in. I don't know how fast it takes a human body to decay, but four days seems like a long time. Jesus wasn't just late. He was really late. In fact, by most accounts, he was too late that Lazarus went from being sick and in the tomb and dying uh, dead within a few days. He missed his opportunity. And I so often remind God, you missed your opportunity. You could have done it this way. Would have worked out. Would have been great. Not only was Jesus late, he was embarrassingly late. You ever been embarrassed by Jesus? Pray with a coworker that doesn't believe in God and you hope if things work out, it doesn't. You're like, oh man, I shouldn't have told him what church I go to. You know what I mean? I shouldn't have said anything about God. I should have just let it alone and let it play out because we get embarrassed by how late Jesus is sometimes. People had to wonder, did Jesus even care? Maybe he's just not capable anymore. 
And another reason we get disappointed with God is because we love to control God. Worse than controlling God, we love to use God to control others. Have you noticed that you can't force people to do what they don't want to do? Even if you use religion, we often want to use God to manipulate and to control others. And God won't be controlled. He moves at his pace, at his time. And he does his will, not our will. And so we often end up in this moment where it doesn't work out. The loved one that we cared about dies. The sickness takes over. The financial resources fall through. The dream and the hope that we had it ends. The business we started fails. The people we love uh, walk away from Christ. Things don't work out in a fallen world. And the first way that I believe we're called to handle disappointment is to mourn. I think mourning is essential. I think when we lose and we lost and a dream dies and something doesn't work out, I think the healthiest thing we can do in that moment is to mourn, to lament, to cry, to break down, to to actually show the emotion that we're feeling. And so often in a society like this, we have to be stoic and we have to pretend it's all together. And I don't know what you're dealing with and many of you don't know what I'm dealing with. And so we just put a smile on. Hey, it's great. Look, it's sunny out. there's nice, let's move on. And we keep this distance between us so we don't have to let others in on what we're dealing with. And mourning is being vulnerable and willing to go, I'm struggling, this is what I'm losing, and it hurts. And when something doesn't go your way, we mourn. When you lose something you love, you mourn. And we mourn together. When it looks like Jesus is just too slow, we can be honest about this and mourn together. Lazarus died. They had a funeral. They prepared the body. They, they buried him. There was mourning. There was sadness. There were tears. And when things don't turn out the way we want, we don't have to put on a brave face. It's not a lack of faith to mourn. In fact, I would argue that if you don't mourn, it's likely that whatever you lost didn't really mean that much to you to begin with. Have you ever been to a funeral of someone you didn't know? I mean, you're sad because they're a human, but also you're thinking there's more oxygen for the rest of us. I mean, there's just this moment where you're like, I don't really feel. But when you actually know the person, it hurts. You're crying. It's sad. You, you, you feel that loss. You miss the phone calls and the texts, and you go to their house, and the stuff's there, and it's weird. And, and you know there's a huge difference that when we don't mourn, it's likely that we just didn't care. If a dream died and you didn't mourn it, it probably wasn't a big enough dream. If you lost a loved one and you didn't take the time to lament, were you even that close? Mourning is proof that we care. And it's actually encoded into our DNA. It's an emotion that we've been given to be sad, to hurt, that God created these emotions for us to explore and to walk through. That mourning is a loss or a broken dream or missed opportunity, and it's important. It's a part of the human condition. And we owe it to ourselves to feel. And in John eleven twenty, it says, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house, and then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said that Lazarus' sickness wouldn't end in death, and it did. The thing that everybody worried about, the worst case scenario, happened. 
Do you ever imagine like the worst case scenario in your head and we fear and we have stress and anxiety and, and worry? Like we always, we never worry about the best case scenario. It's always worst case scenario. And so we project that onto our situation. And in this moment, the worst case, it happened, it transpired. Lazarus dies. And God, if you had just moved a little faster, none of this would have happened. If you had just answered my prayer when I prayed it, the situation, it would have been different. We wouldn't be in this. We wouldn't hurt this way. We wouldn't have to cry. And isn't it disappointing when we tell God exactly how to fix things and when to fix them, and then he doesn't do it? It's like, I just told you how to do it. If you would just listen. Like most of my prayer life is spent telling God how to solve all of my problems and to fix all of my issues and how to take care of everything. And if it's just a great playbook. I have a well-executed playbook. If he'll just run the play, it'll work out. And yet, God doesn't listen to us. God actually answers the prayers we would have prayed if we knew what he knew. He's working from a different plane. And yet, these are the exact kind of questions that we ask when tragedy strikes. God, where are you? If you had just moved faster, if you had just been available, how could you let this happen? You could have prevented all of this horrible pain and, and problems. And, and we can relate to this deep, painful human experience because we've all felt it. We've all walked in disappointment and we've carried disappointment around with us everywhere we go. And I think the second way that we have to handle disappointment is that we have to release it. We have to mourn. But we have to come to a place where we eventually release disappointment. It may not be a week. It may not be months. No one can tell you the time frame. However, if we don't release disappointment, it will define us. It will prevent us from going further. There are circumstances that are beyond our control, yet we still try to control them. Situations that we can't manage, and yet we spend a lot of energy trying to manufacture them and, 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 and control them. And in John 20, 11, 22, Martha continues saying, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Lazarus died. They gave him plenty of lead time. All he had to do was get up and move. He dies. They're in this moment. Jesus shows up. Everybody's sad. Lazarus is dead and in a tomb. Everybody's crying. And, and Martha musters up the courage to say to Jesus, yet even in this moment, despite my circumstances, despite our sadness and pain, I still know that God will listen to you. Now, I don't know if she's being sarcastic. I would be. I don't know if she's trying to regurgitate something that she's been told, like if she's trying to teach herself, like, well, maybe he's still listening. Maybe she's just trying to muster up some faith, put on a brave face. Maybe she's just trying to be nice to Jesus. I know you missed it this time, but you'll get him next time. You know, you were a little late, and, but God does still hear you, I'm pretty sure. I don't know what she's doing here. Maybe she really believes it. Regardless, Jesus responds in 23, your brother will rise again. This is a second promise. The first time he said he wouldn't die, now he's saying he's going to rise again. And, and Martha says, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's saying, I know in the grand scheme of things, he's going to come back to life. 
trumpet blows, everybody goes to heaven uh, who, who believes in Christ, and, and he'll go with us too. I get that. I understand in the grand scheme of things, I know that he'll rise one day, uh, maybe far from now, Martha is struggling to fully understand and completely grasp what's transpiring here. And it's important to note that Jesus does not rebuke Mary or Martha for their mourning. He doesn't rebuke them for their lack of faith. He doesn't rebuke them for not fully understanding or grasping the promises that he's given them. He doesn't rebuke them. This is a great promise here. Hey, he's going to rise again. And whether it's in this life or the next, it's still a beautiful promise. And when we lose loved ones that believed in Christ, we can hold to this promise. One day we'll see them again. And it's a wonderful promise, but it doesn't immediately take care of their initial pain. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Now he's standing in front of a cave, a tomb, right after a funeral service for someone died four days ago. Everyone saw him die. Everyone saw him in the tomb. Everyone knew he wasn't around hanging out. And here Jesus is saying, you will never die. And then he's saying, do you believe this? They're at a funeral service and he's saying, you're never gonna die. And 27, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into this world. Now, she didn't answer his question. She believes your Lord. She doesn't believe the question that we'll never die, but she's giving a response. And Jesus pulls the hope of the future resurrection into the present, promising abundant eternal life that begins here and now. See, we often imagine that God is so focused on the future that he's not available in the present. I often imagine that Jesus is just so consumed with like building beautiful mansions and laying bricks of gold on the streets that he can't be here and now. And we can look at all the suffering and the pain and the problems and go, well, obviously he's working on our future and he's not here in our present. But at some point we have to understand that God is here and now. He's meeting us in our disappointments. And at some point we release those disappointments and we accept God's promises. See, I think a lot of us can't accept God's promises because we're holding too fast to our disappointments. It didn't work out the way I expected it to. That's all a disappointment is, is expectations not met. It didn't work out the way I expected it to, and therefore we're holding on to these disappointments, and we're not accepting God's promises. The scriptures are full of God's promises. His promises are yes and amen, and they come through uh, time and time again, and yet we can't focus on this. We can't accept those or adopt those because our hands are so full of our disappointments, and it might take some time, but at some point if we release those disappointments, we can actually begin to accept and live by God's promises. We can't accept God's promises without releasing those disappointments and so some of us all we have is disappointment that's all we're left with and God will still use that disappointing situation for your good God will still work and move and meet us in that but we're not living to our fullest potential that so many of us are hindered by a wall of our disappointments that until we can move past that we can't really imagine living the best life that God has called us to live that Jesus had seemed so slow in showing up He seemed that he was way too late. But with Jesus, we find that he's never too late. It's never too late for God to come through. Even when a man is dead and in a tomb behind 
a stone, it's still not too late. Even when we are convinced that all is lost, Jesus demonstrates time and time again that there is no loss, no tragedy that can place us beyond the reach of his infinite love and abundant life. Nothing is wasted, nothing is too far gone. Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you backtrack in the passage, it talks about suffering. We're going to have suffering in this world. Things are going to be hard. But God is going to work all things out. See, I can see how he works the fun things. I can see how he works the good things. I can see how he works the miraculous things. But we can't see how God works the challenging things. This is not a passive pat on the back, it'll get better, just hang in there statement. This is another promise by God that everything that we experience in this lifetime, God will use and work out for our good in his time. And as painful as all of our situations are, we know that God is using those seasons in our life to transform our hearts, to uh, form character and an understanding of his faithfulness. They're leading us and drawing us into a depth that we can't understand on the other side. This doesn't mean that God initiates these problems. He's not looking to bring hurt and loss and pain, but he uses these things that transpire in a fallen world. But when we don't release our disappointments, it leads to bitterness. And some of us have moved to bitterness. We've lived with enough disappointments that we've just slid into bitterness and we've camped out there and and bitterness begins to eat away at us. And when we become bitter, even when God does meet our needs, we can't celebrate it. Because we've become so bitter, when God does come through for us, we go, well, I'd asked him to do it four days ago. Why didn't he show up then? Even when he does do something miraculous in our lives, we can't celebrate it because we have just demanded it and expected it. And whatever lie you've been believing, you've got to know that God is not disappointed in you. You might be disappointed in God, but he's not disappointed in you. You might be bitter and angry with God, but he's not bitter and angry with you that he'll meet you in that bitterness because he loves us and he desires the best for us. But so many of us, our souls are just weighed down by the weights that we've placed upon ourselves. Guilt and shame and condemnation and anger and bitterness. Staying in shame and bitterness keeps us stuck. And God knows this. So he wants us to lay down this. He chooses to encourage us and giving us these promises to move us and motivate us to live the life he's called us to live. To not get weighed down and get stuck in disappointment and anger and bitterness. It's a trap of our own making. And in John eleven thirty two, 32, it says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and she told him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha said the exact same thing. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And look at this next passage in verse 35. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. As a kid, I was so proud to memorize that verse. Jesus wept. But can you imagine Jesus weeping? I don't know if it's just because I've grown up in the faith and 
you know, you study Jesus so much, you sort of create like a mythical character where he's pretty stoic. We don't really see major ups and downs. He's just like this guy who walks with like this annoying amount of peace and uh, just kind of moves and operates. And there are moments in scripture where it kind of shakes us out of that mentality where he gets the belt off and runs the money changers out. And then there's this moment where he shows his humanity, where he's fully God, but he's fully man. That Jesus wept. And he wasn't weeping for himself, and he wasn't weeping for his own sorrow. He was weeping at Mary and Martha's sorrow. He was empathizing. He knew the end of the story. He knew what was about to happen. But he was weeping because of the struggles they were feeling. He was weeping because of the sadness they were carrying. Jesus was angry at the impact that death has on humanity and he was deeply moved by it and we find that the shortest verse in the Bible gives us the most insight into Jesus' love and compassion for you and I, not just for eternity, but for here and now. That this speaks both to Jesus' love for his friends but also his humanity, his character. Jesus wept. He wept over hurt and pain. He wept over their disappointment. And so often we believe the lie that Jesus doesn't care about our situation here and now. He's just focused on eternity. We imagine his primary concern is about everything in the future. And yet Jesus cares about your life, both here and now and in eternity. And he weeps. When we weep, your tears are not wasted. God understands us at a deep level and he cares about your present trouble and your present hurt and your present pain and your present disappointment and he weeps alongside you. And in John eleven thirty six, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he open the blind man's eyes? Couldn't he also have kept the man from dying? Some of them saw Jesus' humanity and said, yeah, he loved him. Others looked at it and said, well, if he could do this, why couldn't he do that? Do you ever play that game with God? Well, you did this. You did this for them. Why can't you do this for me? You healed this person. Why can't you heal them? Or you alleviated their suffering. You provided for them. Uh, You provided for me. Why couldn't you provide for me again? And, And so many take inventory of all the great things God has done. And instead of celebrating that and allowing it to build our faith, we weaponize it. We use it against God. We criticize him for not meeting our current need. And it's not that Jesus has done great things, but that we want him to keep doing great things. Oh, it's great that you did that before, but I gotta have it again. I need it more and and more. And if he doesn't meet every need the way we think, we slide back into disappointment. And then we use what he has done in the past against him. Why couldn't you do it again? That God gives us the strength, though, if we'll allow him to, to release our disappointments. And the third thing that we have to do is we have to move forward towards God's promises. If we release our disappointment, then we can actually move forward in the life that God's called us to live. But so many of us are hindered by our disappointments, we can't move forward into God's promises. So many of us are weighed down by our, uh, our disappointment, our bitterness. We didn't, we didn't mourn, we didn't lament appropriately. We didn't address our bitterness, and so now we're weighed down by it. It's preventing us to move forward. We can't stay in our disappointment. It's okay to feel disappointment, but we can't stay there. We can't camp out. Staying in disappointment is not productive, and it actually ends up being harmful 
that we have a responsibility to figure out a way to get out of our own disappointment, to allow God to give us the ability and the strength to, to move forward, to focus on others' needs or uh, to, to focus on something else that moves us away from what we've lost into what God has for us next. And disappointment can, can be a time of renewed resources. We can try something new, we can experience again, we can love again, we can hope again, we can build again, we can dream again. That we often get stuck in our disappointment which prevents us from living God's life that he's called us to. But we're all writing the story of our lives. That many of us stop writing when tragedy strikes. It's done, it's over. And it would be easy to look at Lazarus' life and go, well, that's it. He's done, the story's over. But we know it's just a pause before the story writes itself again. There's another line, there's another stanza, there's another chapter. This is not the end. This is just where we stopped and we started again. This is where something happened. We took a moment, we mourned, we felt disappointment, and then we moved again. And we'll have moment after moment after moment in our life where we have problems and pain and and tragedy, and that's a moment of pause. But we move again. Psalms 34, 19 says, Many adversities come to the one who is righteous but the Lord delivers them from them all. Many adversities come to the righteous. That's not a fair scripture. The righteous aren't supposed to experience adversity, but the scriptures actually say, the psalmist is saying, many we experience, but the Lord delivers us from them all. God hasn't forgotten or abandoned you and I. Even though it feels like it, he loves us and he wants the best for us and we face disappointments many times in our life because we were never promised a perfect life. We are in a broken, sinful world, but we are promised that God meets us in the imperfections and he meets us in the brokenness and he meets us in the disappointment. And in fact, Psalm tells us the righteous person will have many, many, many troubles. So whatever trouble you have, know there's more coming. But God is with us in the midst of it in John 11, 38, then Jesus Angry in himself, meaning he was deeply moved. Not, not that he was bummed he was laid or that he let his friends down, but he was deeply moved. He was indignant. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was laying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. It's been four days. This is going to be disgusting, This is going to be gross. You're not prepared for what's behind that tomb. It's been way too long. You don't want to open that back up. You don't want to deal with this problem. It's easier to move on. We've already mourned our loss. There's nothing good that can come from removing this tomb. Let's leave it set. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I know some of of struggles, uh, but I don't know all the struggles. You don't know what I'm struggling with today. But here's the thing that I think all of us can take with us, can hold true to the promise that God has given us that we need to cling to. Write it down somewhere. Didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? I want this line to be the one thing you remember through hardships and pain and hurt and loss. Didn't. I tell you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out the way you want. It means that regardless of the outcome, you and I are going to see the glory of God. Now, we want answers to our prayers. But God wants to show us his glory. And sometimes the two go together, and those are good moments. 
But regardless of the outcome, God desires to show us his glory. God doesn't use his power to impress us, but he actually uses his power to transform us. If you believe, no matter what we go through, no matter what the outcome looks like in the moment, we will see the glory of God. But do we want to see the glory of God? See, I think a lot of us just want the resolution to our problem. I just want this to be solved. Like seeing the glory of God, that'd be cool, but I just don't want this anymore. I just don't want this pain. I just don't want this problem. I just don't want this trial. I want something else. And God's saying, I want to show you something more miraculous than you could ever imagine. I want to show you my glory. And in 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because the crowd was standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying this so that everyone can hear and have their faith built. If God hears his son and he sent his son to die on the cross for you and my, how much more do you think he's listening to us? Jesus knew God heard him, but he wanted others to know that God was listening. In verse 43, after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now many of us know the ending. We know how it goes. If you've been in church any amount of time, you know, if not, read this afternoon. But I want you to know that the ending doesn't matter. What matters is the reality that Jesus was there. We get so focused on the answer to our prayers that we lose sight of the reality that Jesus is with us. It doesn't matter what we ask God to do in this life. All miracles in this life are temporary. I need healing. Okay, but you're eventually going to pass away, so it's temporary. I need financial restitution. I need this back in my life. I need that back in my life. I need this person, whatever. It's all temporary. And it's not that God doesn't care about the temporary because he does. And he weeps when we weep and he mourns when we mourn. But the greatest miracle of all is that God is with us. Standing at the tomb alongside all of his friends who are suffering and struggling and hurting and he's weeping along with them. God is there. And I feel like we get so caught up in God doing things for us that we lose sight of the reality that we have God. And it's not that he doesn't want to do things for us. But so much more than that, he wants to be there with us. And it's in that moment that we see the glory of God. That's what I want for us. No matter the outcome, God is good. So we mourn, we release, and we move. And you've got to mourn again and release and you move again. You mourn, you release, and you move again. And that's how life operates for us. We're mourning, releasing, and moving constantly. And I don't know the timeline. There's no playbook for it. You just work as God is moving you. And you mourn as God is allowing you to mourn. And you just feel. And I know you're going through some stuff right now. And I know it seems like God has abandoned you. But he hasn't. He's with you. It seems like God has left you alone, but he didn't. seems like you're out here on your own, but you're not. It seems like God's not working, but he is. 
And he'll take the very thing that the devil wanted to use to destroy the foundation of your life and he will bring it into a place that he promised. If you'll let go of disappointment and accept his promise and keep moving, watch how God works. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That you're with us. But God, we admit though life is really hard. And it's harder for some than it is others. And it's harder in certain moments and seasons than it is in others. And everything's a season. It's all a season. And so we have to be reminded that whatever the season you have us in for the moment, you're doing something, you're creating something, you're fostering something in us to prepare us for the next season. And just like seasons in our lives, they change. But you remain the same. So my prayer this morning is that you meet us in whatever season we're in, whatever emotion we're feeling, whatever life is throwing at us. May you become stronger. May we trust and rely upon you at a deeper level. So God, we thank you and we praise you that you meet us in those disappointments. You help us grow from them. We ask that you would be ever-present in our time of trouble, that you be near to us in our hurt and our pain, that our tears are not wasted, that you weep alongside us, that you rejoice with us too. And so God, your word says that there's a time of mourning, there's joy in the morning. So Father, we ask that mourning would come for all of us, that we can move, not get stuck. So we praise you and we thank you for what you're doing in us. In Jesus' name.